Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in week two on a capital on lockdown. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Alice Pearson, director of the Household Calvary Museum, an institution that celebrates the history and accomplishments of the Household Calvary offering a unique behind-the-scenes look at the work that goes into the ceremonial and armored reconnaissance work of Her Majesty the Queen's Mounted Bodyguard. Alice, hello. Hello, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the program today. Um, It's a very odd time for organizations around uh, the country and indeed around the world. It is. Um, We would be remiss if we didn't start the program by just addressing the COVID-19 situation. How how has that affected uh, the museum as an institution? Well, we are in the heart of London and we had to consider not only what the country was doing, but what the city was doing. We are overlooking the Prime Minister's back garden, so we have to really make sure that we're following all the rules. We closed to the public about a week ago. Um, our priority, of course, was our, was our staff, but we didn't want uh, to be the cause of any problems for anybody. So as soon as we knew that we had the board's approval and our staff were going to be okay, we closed our doors. It's a very mm. sad time for us, the first time in over a decade. Uh, and of course, uh, being in that unique location, uh, I'm sure that it is uh, rather busy uh, in the Downing Street end of uh, Horse Guards Parade. But uh, I'd say in your end, it must be quite quiet. It's very quiet. It's, uh, the Horse Guards Parade itself is a beautiful, very open space. I'm not sure if your, your listeners are familiar with it. It's one of the only areas in London that's not lit. So in the winter, it's, uh, it's very dark, but mm-hmm. now it's also very empty. It's quite eerie. What sort of precautions uh, were set in place before the, the national lockdown? Well, we just had to be very careful. We increased our, our personal hygiene. We briefed our team and made sure they felt comfortable with what was going on. And something that you don't really think about much, we have personal audio guides in eight languages. Mm-hmm. So our visitors are predominantly international. And we just had to make sure that people were very comfortable with accepting those from us, clean them down as, uh, with anti-back and to be as hygienic as possible, um, put up signs in the toilets, and basically talked to people. I think that was the most important thing, to make sure people felt comfortable as soon as they arrived from from like a visitor point of view and also a staff point of view. And of course, uh, for listeners who don't know, the Household Calvary Museum is located uh, just next to uh, where uh, some horses are stabled for uh, the mounted guard at uh, Horse Guards Parade. Um, have the horses been removed uh, to the countryside during this period? We have four very, uh, very well-behaved horses on duty during the lockdown. Most of the horses uh, live at the Hyde Park barracks, and they come down to the Horse Guards building, which is the official entrance to the Royal Residence, every day. We had a stable for about up to about 15 or 20 horses here, but we've only got four on duty, and they and a, and a very dedicated team of Queen's Lifeguard are on lockdown duty for 28 days straight. Uh, the rest mm. of the horses have been sent out to grass to try and relax it and enjoy themselves as much as they can. Of course. Well, let's uh, switch back to the subject of leadership. Uh, after all, mm. that's why you're here. Um, <laughs> now, uh, I always like to start this conversation with a very simple question that sometimes mm. has a rather complicated an- answer. What does the word leader mean to you? Hmm. Well, it's an interesting one. I think that that has changed, especially in my time working in the last 15, 20 years. But I feel, I hope that nowadays a successful leader starts with, with listening 
And what they really need to understand is, is the priorities of their team, the priorities of their business, and it's, it's their job to connect those things if there's an initial disconnect. Mm. Um, I think a leader is a good team player, but they also have to have a view of everything that's happening and where your team members may have priorities in, in smaller pockets of, of the business. You as the leader have to be able to balance all of those sections of the business. Now, of course, uh, you're in a very unique uh, position, uh, being that you uh, run an organization that is responsible for showing off uh, the public face of the uh, the army to uh, to the world. Uh, and also, you're in the middle of a, a very uh, delicate security area. Um, what sort of challenges are placed on the uh, on you and the museum as a whole uh, due to the responsibility uh, deviated from uh, security? Well, the regiment always has to come first. We've always got to make sure that the, the soldiers can do their job, and security is a part of that. We've got to be respectful to the Ministry of Defence Police and the Metropolitan Police, with whom we work very closely. Um, Royal Parks actually own and run the parade ground, so we have to work in partnership with them. And we've got to make sure that, although we are we walk the fine line between being a, a visitor attraction business and being a best practice museum, it's a big juggling act. So if we are told that we have to close for security, we have to respect that because that's what we're here to to show and promote and respect. Mm-hmm. There are frustrations when we have to close down, um, but you've got to remember we're not just one thing and we've got to prioritize every aspect of those, uh, those variety of things that we represent. Now, of course, uh, with uh, such a heavy uh, traffic area in such a high visibility uh, organization such as yours, um, you need to keep standards up amongst your staff. How do you keep them motivated to keep those standards high? We're very lucky to have quite a small team, but I think in, in today's society, people move jobs quite quickly, and I have several members that have been here since we opened. And when I joined, I was I was the new girl, so I found it really interesting to finding out why people have been here for a long time and then learning to respect that. I came from quite a fast-paced background, mm. so to come into a culture where people greatly loved their job and they felt very comfortable and associated with it, it was making sure that you had that respect for the, the style of work that they wanted to do, but also incrementally increasing more of the business and fast-paced side. So inspiring people to enhance and improve on the work was was my key uh, initial target. And I had to do that by showing the benefits um, of what we were trying to accomplish. What has created that that, uh, sort of world of uh, wanting to stay there for so long? Well, it sounds a bit corny, but it is is very much like a family Mm -hmm. um, or like a physical body. We have different members of staff who I'd say are, are the brains or the heart or the legs of what we do. And they're very inspiring to the to the younger students that come and work for us. We've got two fantastic part-time history and PPE students that work for us. And I think leading by example um, really has shown them the mm-hmm. way forward. Um, and it's it's really good when you work for, for a regiment and everybody's pulling towards the same goal. Everybody is important to each other. And without every single piece, uh, you can't do the job. And I hope that that's what every member of the team sees, that without them we wouldn't be able to do what we can do. And your importance in, in the whole really shows you that we, uh, you're vital. Are there any pieces of uh, the ethos at the museum that you wish that you had had in you uh, at your previous positions? 
think if I could look back on my time as a younger employee, I've worked very hard and that was very nice, but perhaps I could have worked a little smarter. Mm -hmm. And I think I've definitely learned here to decide where the energy should go. Um, I'm not saying to work at a slower pace, but sometimes to sit back. The gentleman who did the job before me was actually in a position where he was retiring when he left. And he was twice my age, and it was very interesting to see our approaches to work. And the more I'm in this job, the more I can see the benefits of his advice, uh, especially with things such as COVID at the moment. One of his pieces of advice was eventually everything comes back. And we may be at a difficult time now, but the rhythm of, of the industry of travel trade and, and the rhythm of the museum and cultural industry will settle down uh, and it'll blip up again. But the, the, you're in for the long haul. So you just have to weather the storm with his advice. And I think if I'd known that when I was younger, I would have saved myself some anxiety. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before oh, okay. I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store for the Household Calvary Museum? Well, as much as we can predict, we, we had our five-year plan, as any good business would do, and we're just uh, being a bit more flexible with that now. The next three months, as we can imagine, will be a virtual museum that we're trying to build online very lucky to have the support of a regimental historian who's doing a podcast for us so we're very excited about that so we'll be pushing that online and then making sure that we're future proofing as much as we can from a financial point of view to uh, to save funds while we're closed and have no income coming in and then open with a plumb as soon as we can and, and build on the excitement that will be palpable in London at that point. Well, Alice, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you, and I very much hope you come back on the program when things have gone back to normal. We can discuss the museum a bit more in depth. Alice, Love thank that, you. Matty. Thank you very much for having me. That was Alice Pearson, director of the Household Calvary Museum. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. 
And uh, they quite always mention when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years. I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that caliber can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And, of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. On me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, well, I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top; is absolutely vital for a, a for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships. You could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict 
probably at a time it may be overly strict, but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before I was, I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed professional 
people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show you. He got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that's uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one, which I won't bore you in two. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey, or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can think, tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh, if if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think, um, you, you were a young man when... See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really 
struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who. Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, um, well, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly um, yeah and and with that looking at um, uh, football today uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader um well a player current players you mean oh players managers anybody that uh, you look to today really well i think some of the outstanding i think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is 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 uh Klopp at liverpool mm. he has been absolutely fantastic to uh acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that. Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they they are not doing so well he's the best example of management I've seen we've seen we've probably ever seen and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Green was yeah. Well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, That's a good they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking. Um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it 
that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody... And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. The word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind single mindedness, dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time. 
goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.